Cells. Cells. Have you ever been in an institution? Cells. Cells. Do they keep you in a cell? Cells. Cells. When you're not performing your duties, do they keep you in a little box? Cells. Cells. Interlinked. Interlinked. What's it like to hold the hand of someone you love? Interlinked. Interlinked. Do they teach you how to feel finger to finger? Interlinked. You're listening to Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast. Welcome to Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast. I'm your host, Jamie Prater, and I'm joined by my co-hosts, Patrick Green and Peter from the Midwest. Welcome to the show, everyone. Hey, it's, uh, I, you know, wish we could be here under different circumstances. But uh, it's a good opportunity to pay tribute to a Titan uh, who we lost. And, you know, I, I feel like, you know, we're going to talk about Vangelis tonight from a, a number of different angles. And we're going to talk about what he means to us and what he meant to Blade Runner, which is almost impossible to sum up. And of course, we've already done two episodes, you know, on him and his music and on Blade Runner vis-a-vis his music. But like the reality is, is Vangelis is so much more than anything you could ever hope to fit into an hour of podcasting. And he's so much more than you could ever express with words. And honestly, at the heart of Vangelis is the idea that music supersedes words. And I think we all, you know, we're all big music buffs on this podcast tonight. And most of our listeners are as well. I think we know what he was really going after. So I'm saying that to, uh, to say that although tonight we are doing a little memorial tribute to the passing of Vangelis, um, we also know that the the best way to remember him is to hear his music. And I really sincerely hope, I hope that you shut this episode off and listen to his music for a couple hours, and then you can come back and have us going in the background. But it's okay to drown us out with that, with the incredible, incredible artistic legacy that he left, that he leaves behind. Absolutely. Uh, for me, I, I first heard his music before Blade Runner. It was Chariots of Fire, most famously he had been making music as we know for many many years before chariots of fire i remember it moved me um i don't know what you your first exposure on peter you talked about blade runner being your first exposure but i don't know for you patrick i don't know what you were exposed to first um but his music when i first heard it from chariots of fire it was music that i really emotionally connected with that was a and that wasn't i was wasn't really emotionally connect connecting with music as a young child but that one there's something primordial and elemental about it, even though the music is made with synthesizers. There's something about his music that goes deeper than the instruments that he's using. It, uh, so it's he was a powerful musician, gifted, and uh, the world will never be the same without him. There will be no other. Yeah, for me, it, it really is... Um... And I, this doesn't detract from his legacy or anyone else's feelings about him, of course, and hopefully doesn't detract, you know, people's interest in, in sort of my perspective on it. But really, for me, it, it's, it's all about, um, you know, Blade Runner 2019. Um, for me, that was my first introduction to him and really my only, you know, sort of soiree into into his catalog as well. I didn't go on to, to seek other stuff out, but to me, it was always... Um, sort of, you know, of course, intertwined with 2019 and, you know, sitting, uh, you know, in the basement with my dad watching, watching the movie and just being solely engrossed, not only what, what 
was on the screen, but just the soundscape around it. And then that's really what I think first sort of gave me the bug for, oh, wow, you know, movies can have more than just sort of a theme song um, for when the hero swoops in. Um, It can really just sort of drive the entire story and sort of give you sort of the emotional cues in a way that's different than today where, you know, you hear, you know, pick any song uh, that's supposed to tell you how to feel. This was sort of just in the background and and something that would play along. And again, you you can't remove it from, for me. um, And we'll go into this further as we go into sort of how it affected us later, um, it was really just an introduction to me also for that, uh, you know, sort of a synth or uh, electronic type music, which is a lot of what I enjoy today in bands and, and groups and whatnot. So, yeah, to, to me, it, it's inseparable from Blade Runner. And I understand that's a very narrow approach and I don't try to keep them in that box. But for me, that's my experience. Yeah, my, my experience with Van Gallis 100% goes to Blade Runner. That's the first time I ever heard his music. And for, for most of my adult life really was the only source of his music. It really wasn't until I joined Shoulder of Orion, I mean, until we started it, that I even really considered that there's probably other, I, I, obviously I know Chariots of Fire. That's like, you know, the theme from Chariots of Fire is one of the most overplayed things ever. It was, you know, amazing. And it won an Academy Award and deservedly so, but the Chariots of Fire soundtrack is just sort of a part of cultural, you know, it's part of the cult of culture. But, um, but Blade Runner to me was like my gateway to his music for real outside of just that theme that I had heard played in every single opening ceremony of any athletic event my entire life. Um, and getting into Blade Runner more seriously, you know, in the lead up to this podcast launching in 2017 and trying to think more about Blade Runner outside of just my personal experience of it, but also everybody else that was in the orbit of it uh, led to me, you know, four or five years ago, or I guess maybe more than that. Um, really getting into some of his discography and some of his back catalog and enjoying a lot of the stuff that he did with John Anderson from Yes. There's a lot of great things. It's called John and Vangelis. Um, they put out some really interesting music together. And also, of course, you know, I realized that other scores for movies that I loved that I had just never bothered to look up who they were, movies like uh, uh, Alexander or movies like 1492, Conquest of Paradise, like the movies that I had seen, you know, when I was younger and not really bothered to look back on. I'm like, oh shit, that's also me. And then I realized like there must be a lot more to him and his story than I'm giving him credit for. And that's really how I got into him, you know, more seriously. And then uh, just as a, as a composer myself, being just immersed in his work has made me much better synth than otherwise. You know, his approach to music was so beautifully spiritual and unique and strange and so different from, from mine in a lot of ways, because he uh, very much eschewed, you know, you know, honestly, I don't think I've ever said that word out loud before. And I'm going to take a moment to just say, if I'm mispronouncing eschewed, 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 you're right. Eschewed. Mm-hmm. It sounds weird saying it out loud. Eschew, Ladies and gentlemen, this is a this is a very spe- uh, important moment here. Patrick is asking about a word. I, yeah, I've never said that. It I know. It, but is 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 it a shoot? Eschew, it's a shoot. Yeah. A shoot. Yeah. A shoot. Um, I don't even know why I was saying a shoot in the first place. Uh, oh, oh, oh! He he shoot music school, growing up, and very much had a non-academic approach to music. And for a lot, here's the thing: is a lot of musicians say that, and they don't back it up because like they're not particularly good and they're also unaware of what they're doing. And it just comes out ham fisted and, and repetitive and stupid. 
there are musicians like the Beatles, for example, right, who didn't go to music school in any real way and were just incredibly gifted and really used their ears beautifully and made amazing stuff and probably benefited from not having gone to school because they approached it with this very intuitive sense of structure and melody, et cetera. Vangelis is like the perfect example of a musician like that because not only did he not, did he not go to school for music, but he didn't even like get trained on his instruments at all. And he didn't even listen to other artists when he was first starting out and playing in rock bands in high school. He was gifted a Hammond organ as a kid and played it like a synthesizer because he didn't, he didn't know any better. He just tried to make new sounds out of it. And that the reason I'm getting into his history, although I know we've already dedicated quite a lot of time to that is to say that his approach to music was always one fundamentally of curiosity. And I think that is something that is just beautiful. And even in his advanced age, you know, he had albums dropping, I think both of the last two years, I know he had one out last year. I think there was one nocturnes was either a year or two before that still regularly releasing content that I, for one personally adored. And, uh, and, you know, that, that sense of always learning that sense of always trying new things out uh, lends itself so beautifully to his, you know, artistic approach to Blade Runner. And also to hit the approach uh, that he took in terms of collaboration throughout his whole career, because not only did he collaborate with John Anderson, for example, but he collaborated with all these different filmmakers and all these different places and all these different countries and all these different workshops. And he was always just this itinerant, curious musician, you know, who just cared about finding art and finding meaning and not having his ego in the way of it. You know, he was very quiet. He was very reticent to talk about his personal life. And towards the end of his life, he didn't even really want to talk about his music anymore. He just wanted to talk about cosmology because that's really all he was after. So, uh, you know, that's a long way of saying I, I just love his curiosity and I love his consistent childlike wonderment at the art of making music. And the music that he made was was truly incredible. I would 100% agree. I don't know if uh, either of you are familiar with his album, Methodia. Methodia was released in conjunction with a NASA mission, I can't remember the exact mission, um, but he wrote the music and it was performed live with an opera and it's absolutely astounding. It's not, everything in it isn't for me, but it's this rapturous movement. Uh, I, I don't know how long, like how long the whole album is, um, but to accompany our mission to the stars. And that seems to be where he was at, to your point, Patrick, where he, that curiosity took him away from our, our, you know, the, our Terra to a distant planet or distant planets. And that's where like he was thinking about the beyond. And before those albums came out, you could really hear him. And I'll talk about 1492, the score for that. And if you guys haven't heard 1492, it is a shimmering, illustrious score. One of the most gorgeous scores I've ever heard in my life. Um, I do think that Blade Runner, his score for Blade Runner is in the zeitgeist. Like it just is like tears and rain is a song. Everyone can hear and know where it's from. Um, it is, you know, synonymous with sci-fi in some ways. Um, I think his music made Blade Runner even bigger than it is. It more timeless than it is. As much as we love Blade Runner 2049, there's something that Vangelis' music did for the original that Walfish's music is not doing for 2049. And I'm not here to compare because obviously we everyone know, everyone knows I love that movie. It's a masterpiece. But there's something about the score that Vangelis wrote for 2019 that is just 
sublime. And again, to use my favorite words, primordial, elemental, speaking to us from almost like the earth. Um, and I, I remember as a kid, because I did love music as a kid, I, I remember listening to um, the soundtrack to say E.T. and hearing John Williams. And of course, you have like Star Wars and all of those very popular Jaws, you know, all of those very popular scores but vangelis was doing something very very different than john williams or all of the big composers at the time even um uh jerry goldsmith what's his name uh who worked with james cameron for a long time james horner <laughs> james horner yeah vangelis was doing music that was in some ways running circles around them but it was in a whole different sphere um, and he was doing it at a time where synth was a big deal. And someone called him as I was reading about, uh, uh, not really an obituary, but a, a kind of a, a written memoriam for him. They talked about Vangelis as kind of the father of 80s synth. And I thought, oh, that's very interesting, because if you listen to 80s synth pop, it's not what Vangelis was doing. It wasn't. You listen to the score for Blade Runner, you listen to synth pop at that time, they're diametrically opposed in some ways, or maybe not opposed, but they're just going off in different directions. But this article, and I have to find out which one it is, saying explains that what he was doing with his instruments was influencing artists to go further, to use other instruments, to to come out of the that the seventies, like the the instruments that they were using in the 70s, the instrumentation, the percussion, and move it forward. And Vangelis had been doing that for a while. And then people start, other people started taking, I'm not, I don't know if I'm articulating this the best, but I didn't really realize he was so influential in mu music of the 80s until, unfortunately, the last few days when I was reading more about him. And to continue, uh, I'll continue a, a failure to articulate, despite being uh, I guess a, a rough music journalist at some point during my life for various uh, skateboard magazines, I've always had trouble actually using musical terms. And so I'll lean heavily on Patrick to correct anything or to speak more about the concepts I'm trying to bring up. But for me, a big part of what Vangelis uh, showed me um, through at least an interest in music and, th and through this Blade Runner. And is, is the term, are we are we going to keep using, do we say the Blade Runner soundtrack? Is it the Blade Runner score? Patrick, think, can you jump in the, for a second? The, the term is eschewed, I think mm. is how it's said. <laughs> no, the, the, the score is the actual music that accompanies the film. And the soundtrack, you know, is usually what they call like the CD that comes out. But, you know, so the OST yeah, okay. is the original soundtrack. Yeah. Okay. Well, in listening to both uh, the score and the soundtrack, what always hit me, at least what he sort of introduced me to was um, sort of not using or having more than simply the notes. Again, I'm going to explain this completely wrong. And Patrick, you can jump in after and try and explain what I was trying to explain, maybe. But for me, it was always it's not you can't in everything I listened from him, at least relating to the Blade Runner and what I've listened to him again, um, the songs, rather than being able to pick out a specific note 
or a specific instrument. He always, to me, was incredible. And what I've come to love about other bands that do this, um, you know, I grew up on a lot of Sonic Youth and other types of bands that would do a lot of experimentation and, you know, fill, fill voids with feedback, where in between maybe with one band, you can hear a chord and you can maybe even hear the exact chord they're hitting and how the progression works. What I always found from him and what then led me to other bands again, like Sonic Youth and other bands like that was, I loved it when a band would then fill that void with something else. And so it's, it's, it's a, you know, what some people would describe a wall of sound, you know, my bloody Valentine or, or something like that, where it's just, it's all sound. There's no real void. There's no silence. Again, I don't know what that is, what that means. But to me, it was the first time I was like, wow, every single space here sounds like something, even if it is a sound of space. And again, I don't know how better to describe that. But to me, it was just that all of a sudden you can hear the air. You can hear what's, and to me for the movie, that means you can hear between the raindrops you can hear you're, you know you're not just hearing the noises of the city you're hearing what the city sounds like if for a moment it would be silent which it can never be silent because there's always a buzz of a light or a buzz of something and to me he's the first person i heard sort of fill everything don't waste any space yeah he was definitely an additive composer right and I, we don't need to get too much into like the theory behind his music, you know, on, on this episode. But, but I, I think what, what you're really hinting at is something that he loved to do, which is to layer many, many, many different sounds on top of each other and to create these really expansive sounding uh, soundscapes. And, uh, you know, Jamie mentioned before Methodia, uh, you know, another one that actually the, the most, the album that he did shortly before his death that I was talking about before from Juno to Jupiter is also a NASA inspired album based on uh, a probe. And it's beautiful and it's so expansive. Part of why I love that album so much is because it really feels like those 80s albums that are just huge and expansive and you know, just wall to wall full of, of noise and fury, you know, and beauty. Um, but a lot of that comes from the way that he composed, which was usually really, you know, he he sets up these repetitive things and he builds on them and he makes these just really grand structures with them. And uh, and I think a lot of the music that we associate with with him really can be owed. I guess to to four four things. I want to try to boil Vangelis's you know aesthetic to four things. One is the music of his homeland, the music of Greece. I think a lot. Uh, it's easy to overlook how important his Greek upbringing was in terms of his musical influence. But his music is almost unfailingly very simply melodic. You know, even Blade Runner, like the music, pretty much always has a very projected melody. You know, I know Jamie loves him from Opera Sauvage, right? That's just one melody that repeats over and over. Chariots of Fire is a great example that too, right? There's an unmistakable melody that is just singing above everything else. Um, a lot of his melodies are influenced by Greek music and by Greek folk music. So I think when we hear Vangelis, we hear his Greek heritage. I think another thing we hear is the, his studio, right? So he had that uh, famous studio, which I think was called Nemo. Uh, and I will look that up and correct myself if I'm wrong, but I, but I think it was the Nemo Studios in London that he set up where it was basically his you know, perfect cradle of creation, where he was surrounded by all these synths, including the CS80 the you know famous CS80, uh, but also all these percussion instruments and these acoustic instruments and these folk instruments and these guitars and you know melodias and all these different things. 
and because he he had all of that at his disposal, and basically he had a budget to create whatever he wanted, and he just created this room full of interesting sounds. So when you hear Blade Runner, which was produced in that studio, you know you hear uh, just this like vast variety of things. You know people always talk about him as a synth guy, and they should because he really pioneered the use of synthesizers in film scoring, but also just in general, he really was for a lot of people, their gateway to synth music and continues to be. But a lot of uh, what you hear in Blade Runner isn't even synth. You know, you have like, there are things that are very clearly synthesized, but listen to something like, you know, it's like uh, Tales of the Future, for example. And there's very little synth in that. A lot of it is chimes and these beautiful acoustical sounds. And Vangelis himself always said, you know, I do play synths, but it's not the only thing I do. Like, that's just what people notice the most. I really love playing other things also. So a lot of it was this maximalist thing that his studio allowed him to do. Another thing that made Vangelis Vangelis was the CS80, the Yamaha CS80, which I just mentioned, which we talked about ad nauseum and I won't get hugely into. But what was important about the CS80 is that it was pressure responsive, right? So it really pioneered this ability to play the keyboard like a stringed instrument or like a human voice. So when you hear Blade Runner, you can actually hear him playing it a lot. And when he's pressing something hard, you know, it gets louder and there's more vibrato. There's more of an oscillation to the sound wave. And when he backs off, it's quieter. It's very expressive, like a human voice. So a lot of the really pioneering stuff that Miguel said with the synth is because he's breaking it out of the confines that we usually associate synth music which, with, which in the 80s was like craft work, you know, very dance rhythm, you know, um, and made it into something really kind of uh, expressive and almost sacred feeling. And then the fourth thing I think that really makes him him is his obsession with the cosmos and the great beyond that we've been talking about. Because if you look back to his stuff, even in the 70s, he was always trying to, he's basically been waiting for opportunities to write science fiction music, you know, like all, all of his, even when he was doing documentaries on nature films and things like it just, it just sounded otherworldly. And so Blade Runner was really the perfect thing for him, even more so than Chariots of Fire, which had already won him an Academy Award by that point. Blade Runner was really where his heart lot, you know, lay. Uh, and I think that's part of why his contribution to Blade Runner stands above the others. Even something like 1492, which is just an incredible score, also a Ridley Scott movie for what it's worth, you know, um, and a really good movie. Like, you know, nobody talks about it. People talk about Blade Runner every day, everywhere around the world. And, you know, Vangelis' score for it is is a major reason why. And I personally know many people who got into writing electronic music because of Vangelis' score for Blade Runner. Like, you'd be surprised the amount of, like, ma- quote unquote, mail that I get from people who listen to our shows and, you know, they reach out to me because I'm a musician and they're like, hey, like, this is really, this is like how I got into making music. Um, and they send me, like, people love to send me patches, which keep doing that, by the way. You know, they'll send me like virtual instrument plugins and things that they found that remind them of, of Vangelis' music. And I love that. Like I talked to Dr. Bunce about that all the time, you know, great example of it. Um, his stuff like completely seeded the fertile ground of artistic imagination for people who, it, 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 I'll shut up in a second. I know this is going on for a long time, but, but the, uh, one fifth point that I would like to bring up is the democratization of music that he helped happen. Because what is great about synthesizers is that they allow you to approximate the sound of an orchestra, right? In your own home, which is a, a rudimentary way to look at it because they do a lot more than that, but they were developed, you know, partly to do that, right? To emulate the sounds of, of an orchestra. Not everybody in the world has an orchestra at their disposal. Not everybody in the world goes to a fancy music school and has string quartets to play their music, right? 
But in the mid 1980s, if you had access to a few hundred bucks and a big ass Christmas present, you might have gotten a Roland synthesizer or something, and you might have been able to create something like that in your own home. And Vangelis is just the perfect example of that because he basically did that in Nemo Studios, and uh, and the rest is history. So yeah, so his he really is uh, is is an amazing iconoclast, musically speaking. And there's a lot of reasons behind that. Following your point, Patrick, Vangelis experienced a lot of blowback and a lot of criticism because of the amount of synth that he used. A lot of it started happening in the early 90s. People were not taking synth artists very seriously. And then things started to change. For for whatever reason, and I don't know why, people considered synthesizers as like fake music, almost like drawing with Photoshop. Like, oh, okay, it's synthesizer. You're not playing a real instrument. You're just, you know, but... It's like, okay, I can take a, a, a brush and paint and paint something and someone who has no skill can do it. And we're going to come up with two vastly different pieces. Um, and that's what synthesizer, which it's not just a synthesizer. There's many different kinds. It's a whole spectrum of, of instruments at, at your disposal if you, if you have the money. Um, but uh, he really found respect for his craft later on in his life. I mean, of course, he he did write Chariots of Fire, which interesting with Chariots of Fire, initially from what I read, and I'm probably going to get this wrong. So if someone wants to let me know, that's great. Um, initially, he was he wasn't going to use synth for that the big the big number for Chariots of Fire. It was going to be something else. And then later on, he switched it over. And I think the studio was actually giving him trouble. Like, no, why are you using a synthesizer for this? Again, I'm probably really getting this wrong, but it's something like this. Um, but then he stuck to it. And of course, he won his Academy Award. But what I think is really profound about his music is certainly the wall of sound and its otherworldliness. But I'm going to mention a track. It's the last track off 1492. It's called... Nina Pinta Santa Maria, or it might be called Pinta Nina Santa Maria. And it's about a nine minute track or a 13 minute track. And it encapsulates everything that he can do amazingly. And it's, it's, you're, it's like you're on this journey. And then at the end of the track, it's like, it just pushes you into the stratosphere. It pushes you into the stars. It is one of the most gorgeous tracks I've ever heard in my life. And to a point that Peter was making earlier about thinking about Blade Runner and it's a movie that I think is singular where when we think about Blade Runner we think about how it sounds as much as we think about what it looked like and that a lot of movies can't accomplish that the tapestry of sound is so interwoven into the narrative that we can listen to the music and be watching the film um, the only other music the only other score that I could even remotely compare this to is Goldenthal's score for Alien, Alien 3, which is interwoven into the, the, the atmosphere of that movie. But Blade Runner, there is just something about his work on that movie that transcends time and space. And that's all, that I, that's all I know how to say about it. It transcends time and space. And it's a movie that you can texturally feel feel you can feel his music in your body you know like when chris is walking down the street when zora's running through the glass you feel it uh whatever he's doing with the melody and i i am a huge fan of melody i don't really listen to music unless there's a melody i can't do it i can't listen to very technical music it doesn't do anything for me and vangelis 
is singular, in my opinion, in terms of composers. He really wasn't a film composer. Yes, he's done some scores, but that wasn't his thing. His thing was just making music. And he, you know, ended up being, cho- you know, he. I think his last film score was for Alexander the Great, I think. But that was, I don't even know how long ago. That had to have been 2004. years ago. 2004, yeah, almost 20 yeah. years ago. Um, I remember seeing that at Blockbuster because there were still Blockbusters at that time. And his score for that was really good as well. I know we are here to pay homage to him, but I can't almost do it enough. I can't express enough how monumental this man was and his death and his passing and how he influenced everyone, every composer, everyone in the the industry. His music, people will talk about his music and what his music did for them, uh, whether it's James Newton Howard or Johan Johansson, may you rest in peace, just all they would do was talk about what his Vangelis' music had done for them and how it influenced them. And uh, I, I, we have really and truly lost a titan of music. And I don't, I really hope people fully understand that. And I hope that his music, beyond Blade Runner, I hope his music really makes a resurgence. I don't want to jump in here because I don't want to talk about Blade Runner first, <laughs> right following that. Go ahead. So Pat- Patrick, you jump in for a sec to segue a little more. <laughs> yeah, I can, I can segue it a little bit. Um, it's funny that you mentioned Johan Johansson because the the reason he was, of course, dropped from 2049 was that then he said that they wanted to get something closer to Vangelis than what Johansson was doing. And, you know, supposedly it was amicable. They had a lot of respect for each other. So, you know, I, I have no no doubt about that but um but johansson many times stated that that as you mentioned that vangelis was a major influence on him and uh you know he just took it in a different direction which i I think i mean you know we supposedly will be getting to listen to some of johansson's score in the form of not even kidding fucking nfts which is incredibly ridiculous but you know it would it'll be really great to be able to hear some of that um and and i think there's a reason why you know, he, I, to me, Vangelis and Johan Johansson were very similar in a lot of ways. I think that they, their music uh, was was both very experimental, very spiritual feeling. Johansson, I think, was such an incredible composer and such an, such a humongous loss. It's a, it's really hard to even fathom what a loss that was, because he was really at the you know beginning, mid stages of his career and had so much ahead of him. I feel really grateful that we had Vangelis for as long as we did. You know, as we were talking before the show started. He he hasn't been looking like great in photos lately. I've been kind of worried about his health. But then Juno to Jupiter came out, and I was like, oh, I guess he's doing he's doing well. You know, I've written to his agent many times. Uh, we've been, I've tried to get him on Shoulder of Orion, you know, probably three or four times or since the show started, and you know, we never got a response back. That is one hundred percent not. A slight. It's not something that ever offended me or us. Uh, and I think that there's no reason why Vangelis should talk to a bunch of nerds on a podcast like us unless he really wanted to. Because the reality is, is like Vangelis didn't want to talk about his music. Like I was mentioning earlier, every interview you read with him that he did, which are very few, he's just talking about space and about the cosmos. Um, I also urge people before we get back around to Blade Runner to listen to the stuff that he did in the late 70s. Like there's an album called Spiral. That's really great. And you can hear him building to the sound that we get 
in Blade Runner and in Chariots of Fire for that for that matter. Uh, and and I, I before I hand it over to Peter again, I, I want to say that part of what made him so special as a film composer. It's interesting you brought up Ellie Goldenthal actually because there's a similarity here, Jamie. But when when Vangelis worked on a film, he was very visual and he would watch dailies and he would get footage back when sit with the director and watch it. And he'd be working all the way from the beginning of the rough cuts of the film. So as we've mentioned, you know, hundreds of times by this point, but also on, on uh, Sublime Noise, especially most music nowadays for film is composed after the film's already wrapped. So it's already edited. It's already done. And then there's like a few months, if that, uh, to get the score written which is part of why you never see an advanced score release. It just doesn't happen because the score is being literally being written during the advertising campaign a lot of the time for the movie, which is unfortunate. Uh, Hollywood hasn't always been like that, but even at the time that Vangelis was scoring, he was given a lot of leeway to write things the way that he wanted to write them because his process was not Hollywood at all. You know, his process was very collaborative. It was very time consuming he spent the bulk of an entire production schedule working on the music just bit by bit and piece by piece. Uh, you know, and the, and Ridley Scott has these beautiful stories, you know, you can read about them in, in future noir and elsewhere about working with Vangelis, who he thought was this like wizard figure almost. And uh, he, he said that, you know, they would go. So after, after Scott was done, you know, cutting some version of some cut of the film, he would go over to Nemo studios in London and just hang out with Vangelis until the wee hours. And they would be eating Chinese food because Vangelis always liked to eat. So he would be like ordering all this food during it. And they would just be sitting there and Vangelis would be playing through all the ideas that he had and really didn't like have to be there for that. But he wanted to because Vangelis' spirit was so beautifully collaborative and, you know, experimental and curious. And, uh, you know, you have to wonder what something, you know, what somebody like Ridley Scott is feeling in times like this, because of course, not only have we lost Van Gellis, but we've lost like so many people over the last couple of years, especially tied to Alien, but but Blade Runner now increasingly as well with Rucker Howard's death. You know, that was a, a major one. Um, and now Van Gellis. And I feel like Ridley also is obviously getting up there and uh, it must be strange to like, you know, all these memories fade away, like tears in the rain, you know, and I, I feel like it must be a really uh, haunting place to be in. And I, I, th I think his kinship with Van Gallus was a really special one. Also tears and rain. There is no, the, I apologize. I had to correct myself. Eschewed. How dare you? Yeah. I, I, just listening to, to Patrick, you speak so well again of, you know, just the various reasons why, you know, he's much more than just the Blade Runner um, score and, and soundtrack. And a lot of it is interesting also, the way you described, you know, how someone like Ridley Scott's dealing with it. And I think that's just how a lot of just fans, um, you know, other listeners like me who are only familiar through Blade Runner. Um, for me, you know, we all hold this film in different ways, I think, in our heart and just the ways that it, it grows with us. And, you know, for me, one of the first things I thought is, you know, yeah, here's just another layer, you know, falling away, something falling, you know, tears in the rain. Um, but again, the way I hold it so dear to my heart, you know, with having watched this movie and it, I was associated with with my dad and, and things like that. And uh, again, not to detract from anything, but it's almost like, you know, when when uh, someone from, you know, maybe let's say the greatest generation and how, 
you know, there's only so many left and you, you, you lose those that you have a shared experience with. And for me, you know, that's just kind of what I went to almost immediately upon hearing about it as, Oh, here's another person involved with what's uh, so important movie experience, um, just life experience, uh, way to sort of deal with life and help, put it through as certain lenses and stuff. And here's just another person that was involved in some, creating something so beautiful and they've fallen away. And well, you know, he may not personally even wanted to talk about it anymore. Um, you know, at least to us, to, to fans and, and the people who, who love Blade Runner, it's just another person who helped create this disappear. Not that they were ever going to do it again or could do it again, but it's just, a piece of it is gone now. And I think that's not to be taken, you know, I think lightly that, you know, soon it will be just that it's, it's, it's simply something that was created by all these people at one time exists like that. And there, at some point there won't be anyone to, you know, who, who was someone to experience it. And I don't know why that matters to me, but it, it does. And to just have someone who, who was such an integral part to it. And I was going to speak to other stuff, but I'll, I'll pass it off since I was sort of, you know, going off on, on that part. But it, to me, it really did sort of hit home for a minute that here's someone that was so important to it. And um, to me, like Jamie said, it, it's a movie that um, you could turn off if you could the entire dialogue track and just listen to the score while you're watching it. And it, it, it hits, it would hit just the same. I would encourage our listeners to find some video clips on YouTube showing Vangelis playing a live show. And uh, that's one thing that we haven't discussed before. His, so yes, he was an incredible musician, composer, um, many different things. But his live performances, yes, he was accompanied at certain times um, with larger orchestras or other musicians or percussion but oftentimes he was just the main event so he would be surrounded by all of these keyboards and instruments and he would be playing entire shows sometimes just him doing everything and i'm sure patrick understands more than i do how difficult that is in a in a in a, a cathedral or a, a a setting or like a a, a venue to perform your music live I can't even imagine what the work that I'd have to go into, but he would do it all the time. He was absolutely a genius at his work. Um, and sometimes there's um, people who can be great in the studio. They, that doesn't really iterate into a live performance. One of my favorite musicians, her name is Anya. She's never performed live because he can't perform that music live. Someone like, Vangelis has been able to do that and he's toured with his music and it's very very difficult to do um someone i would also relate to him would even though her music is very different is bjork her music is very like textured very layered lots of different vocals but she's taken her music on the road and again for these artists that are make their music with synthesizers and all these weird specific sounds to bring that to a live setting 
takes months and months and months of work to get it. And he did it. And I, I think for me, not to say, I don't, I don't believe that just because you can't tour music live doesn't mean you're any, like that doesn't mean that you're a lesser musician. It just means that's just, that's just your arena. Your arena is a studio and you release albums. There's plenty of people who release albums and don't tour. Vangelis did it. And I feel like his music is some of the most complicated music to iterate live. And no, it's not to say that his music sounded like it did on the record, because it didn't. It sounded different. But it's a very different setting where you're engineering and mixing these things in real time. Um, so again, I would really encourage our listeners to look for those clips of him playing live and see this man at work. Yeah. Also, while you're at it, look up footage of him in studio too, though, to see how he does it because he, because a couple of things just briefly that I love about Vangelis's process, you have to understand before the nineties, like digital synthesizers were a crapshoot. It was just not a realistic thing for most people to do and to make good music with. And it really wasn't until, you know, that kind of, came around that this became stuff that was really producible at home. And of course, in the 2000s until now, you know, everybody has logic on their MacBook and every garage band and everybody has, you know, a poly synth and they can just, you know, plug it into not even into a MIDI interface now, but just right into a USB-C port and they can create, you know, walls of 400, you know, sequenced MIDI instruments in 20 minutes by just copying and pasting stuff. It, you know, th the amount of work that goes into doing that now, not like the music is any worse, but the amount of effort that it takes is so much less to get the same thing. And we see this, of course, we've talked about this in terms of film editing, right? Like in even 20 years ago or 30 years ago, all film editing was inherently destructive because you had to actually physically cut and glue and tape, right? Um, and now, I, all, I mean, all three of us do this kind of stuff. I know Jamie and I do this all the time with editing videos together. Like it takes a, a second because it's just, it's right. You have the original file and you can do whatever you want with it. And it doesn't fuck it up. Um, Vangelis started in the very analog era of using synthesizers, right? Uh, sometimes literally analog synths, many of them are. And even up until current, right before his death, all of the stuff that he did was produced that way. And you can see him in studio as an old man, you know, like setting up his presets for his blockchain thing, not blockchain for his, I'm, I'm thinking NFTs now because of the fucking score being released. Um, you know, his chain is like daisy chain of, uh, of like mechanical actuators that he sets up with his little symbols. And you can see him like programming it, like literally like spinning gears around to get things ready to press the next preset. And he could be doing that in a in you know in Logic or in you know uh, Ableton or something. He just never got into it, and yet his ability to do that so fluidly was a major reason why what Jamie's saying is completely right, which is he can do it live. And what's beautiful about it is you know you can have somebody like uh, you know I don't I'm not gonna like shit on anybody, but somebody like Skrillex for example, right? Like EDM stuff who does a lot of really complicated synth things live, but they're doing it through a laptop, right? And so the laptop is then hooked to a keyboard or two, and that's really driving it. But with Vangelis, he needed that whole proscenium full of keyboards because they were all doing different things. So it is really amazing to watch him octopus like move around the studio. And also it just, you just know that he was in his happy place and you can see it instantly, especially when he's working at home or in a studio, but also live, you know, he's really, there's a level of comfort there. Um, and I think just in terms of how that influenced his compositional processes for a film like Blade Runner, you know, something that he was pretty strict about was he did never, he, he never overdubbed in general, anything. And of course, overdubbing is when you re-record over something you've already done, right? So like he would play it live 
And if he liked that version of it, he would keep it. He wouldn't punch in and fix a note somewhere like that would, that would be it. So his music for all of the, you know, for, for how much we talk about it as a product of the future of, you know, the synthesizers and technology, it's very human. And that is what you hear is really Vangelis playing it. And that's why something like the CS80 suits him so well, because it has, you know, that potentiometer and it has the vibration and stuff and you can press it harder or softer. But like, even when he's playing something that's not as expressive as the CS80, you can hear Vangelis because it's not perfect, you know, because things aren't pressed at the exact right time. There's no fucking metronome in the background, keeping him beat for beat. He's feeling it out. And, uh, and that just doesn't happen. Like, I, I, I don't know anybody who doesn't overdub things um, because it's, it's kind of crazy to not do that because you want it to sound as good as it can get. But Vangelis had this spiritual connection to the music. And he was like, what makes it sound imperfect is there for a reason. You know, I'm good at my instrument. I know what I'm doing. And the mistakes that I make are the product of my humanity and they should be there forever. And that's a major reason why even at its most cerebral and technical, his music sounds so unfailingly human, I think. I think one really interesting thing about memories of of Vangelis and going to also then sort of Blade Runner in general as well. I, I think a lot of what, if you step away from it and haven't watched it in a long time, if you haven't listened to it in a long time, I think again, like Jamie indicated, the zeitgeist of it all sort of takes you away. It's sort of the similar to how um, eventually at some point, cyberpunk, steampunk, whatever you want to say, you know, of course takes a lot from Blade Runner and you see something and you're, sort of say oh that's so blade runner but in a lot of ways it's not because it's so far removed but it yet has become such a key or a a foundation for what it's built upon um for me a a lot of times the music reminds me of that where i'll be think uh, in the back of my head i'll be listening to um you know like a modern recording band or, or something would be there's a band called black marble um, they're a little more of, they're not exactly a, what you call um, minimal synth or cold wave, but they kind of come from that. And, you know, that's an entire genre of music of people that were so tired of the pre-programmed and all that, that they want to play from the original instruments. They want to, um, when they play live, to be the ones who are actually playing it, similar to Patrick said, you know, if I, if I push the key harder, it's going to be a different note. And so you're never going to recreate that exact sound. And, you know, but a lot of times I think what I'm getting to is uh, you'll listen to something, you know, that you'll think is, oh, that's so Blade Runner. You know, you think of some industrial artist or think of anything like that. You're like, oh, it's so Blade Runner. But then you go back and you listen to it. And really, it's not any of that at all. You know, it's, it's not this so synth heavy um i'm trying to just think of of parallels and it may be a little bit groany to some people of my vintage because of you know how how bands progress and they're, they're sort of don't continue from where they started but for me a big one um was you know i had friends with older brothers so we listened to a lot of nine inch nails and a lot of um pretty hate machine and you think of you know pick a track like had like a hole and the 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 main keyboard rhythm or refrain or whatever you want to say it's kind of that really deep sound and patrick i'll ask you uh, if you know it's that deep deep keyboard that's you know later come out again you know a lot of the stranger things theme is that really deep sound and that's a, a gut you know like a visceral sound 
but I, I can't get enough of it ever. I'm not going to say that that's, again, I'm not trying to detract from that at all. I love it. But you, sometimes you hear that and you think, oh, it's so Blade Runner. But really, it's not. I mean, you think more of, again, using Pretty Hate Machine as, as sort of a, as a sounding board or a parallel. You know, there's a lot more from the piano tracks on an album like that that would take from Blade Runner. Um, for me, you know, Memories of Green is one of my favorite songs as I've gotten older. And again, that's not really what you'd consider synth as a heavy keyboard or, you know, 80s, like Jamie said, 80s pop synth, you know, spin round, round, or, you know, just pick any Duran Duran song or something. And you think, oh, that's so 80s, that's so synth. But really, again, it sounds a lot more organic when you go back to Blade Runner and it doesn't sound as Blade Runner in quotes as you think it does anymore. And it's really a lot more complicated, a lot more, I don't know, adult. I don't know how else to explain it than you think. You know, I, I think Blade Runner and you always go right to, you know, again, some sort of 80s synth sound. But that's not at all what the soundtrack actually sounds. And it is much more deeper, a lot more, uh, I don't know, complicated. So for me, it's, it's always interesting to return to it and think, oh, my God this is more complicated than I ever thought. And it's funny how both Blade Runner, the movie, and then the soundtrack sort of have that projection. They've become so much things to anyone um, than they actually are. And when you return to it, it's always more complicated than what you originally, you know, just think of on the fly. Again, I'm not explaining much of that as well as Patrick could, as far as musically, but it's, you know, that's a big part to me. And that's how I got into a lot of that stuff too. How, why a piano track again, on you know, something like pretty hate machine would hit different. And there, again, there's that atmospheric sound to it and why it was so familiar and sort of like, Oh, I've heard this before. You guys got to stop apologizing. You, you both do a beautiful job of expressing your thoughts musically. You do not need to qualify it. Honestly, I, I, I read you loud and clear every time, both of you. Um, and just, I want to give a quick plug to memories of group. Also, that's that's one of my favorites, and and I think showcases such a beautiful, introspective part of Van Gallus's music. Like that is one of those tracks that you just get so lost in. Da, 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 da. It's just so beautiful and relaxing and just interesting. And of course, in the movie, most of that music occurs when Deckard's drunk, you know, and he's just like sitting there, and it's just this quiet moment that's so introspective and lost and beautiful and it's just it just captures similar to blade runner blues just this feel that's so blade runner like we talk about blade runner as you know when you say blade runner people think of an aesthetic or they think of it as a sci-fi future vision or something but it's really a state of mind a lot of the time and and to me blade runner blues and memories of green might be the most perfect ways that that state of mind is captured musically by vangelis no, again, and that's exactly what I was trying to explain, which is you, when you just say Blade Runner, it evokes, again, the cyberpunk, the neon, the hustle and bustle. But yet, again, I agree that the most heartfelt or the real core of what Blade Runner, when it just hits you and you just want to sit there and live in it, it's those tracks and it's those scenes. It's not the spinner it's not the futuristic you know whatnot it's it, again it's i don't know how else to explain it but it, it's just that core that center the heart of the film and i think to recreate it in any way 
And I think in some more recent reiterations, that core, that heart gets lost. And for me, a, a lot of what I feel the loss of in Vangelis leaving is that it's that. It's it's just the heart of it, the 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 more complicated um, portrayal of both characters, of music, and I just fear without sort of that center anymore that it, it can be shot off into those more, like you said, sort of more modern day plug and play type scenario. And I think when we lose composers that were willing to have those conversations or composers that would keep a director's attention long enough that he'd want to have a conversation with them rather than here's my movie, you know, make my score. Um, I, I think it's a real loss to the art form. It's a real loss to, you know, to us too, as, as people who appreciate it. So. I would like to describe Vangelis's music uh, in a way that I think, well, number one, he has no contemporaries. He's never had any contemporaries. He's never had any peers. Uh, a lot of the composers working today, the, the one exception I, that comes to mind right away, what, what might be Mika or Micah Levi, their music is amazing and it's very, again, uh, ephemeral and organic sounding, but their music goes off in a completely different direction. When I hear you describing the music of Blade Runner, Peter, what I feel like Vangelis does beautifully is his music is the inner life of his characters. Most of the time in movies, music is manipulating our mood. Oh, it's, it's, a, it's a sad moment. Oh, it's a scary moment. Oh, it's a tense moment. This is how you're going to feel. Oh, it's a triumphant moment. I mean, if you listen, if you go see, you know, there's plenty of Marvel movies that I love if we've had these conversations, but a lot of that move, music is serviceable to like, okay, you're here for the action. You're here for, you know, the, you know, the, the dialogue, the characters, the music is just here to service that. It's not really here to do anything special. Whereas Vangelis, his music was the inner life of his characters. And I don't know what other composer can do that where you're not feeling manipulated into you're feeling what it's like to be Pris walking in an alley alone. Um, this, this replicant who shouldn't be on earth. We're really not really not sure what they are, um, but they're not, you know, she's alone in this big, huge city walking down an alley, hoping to find a longer life. And his music just beautifully, beautifully expresses that. Um, in a way where we're not being manipulated by it because that's who she is in the same way that we're not being manipulated by who Deckard is. We're being, we're, the music is exploring who Deckard is. It's revealing who he is to us. Um, and that moment when he goes on the balcony and you hear that music playing and he's looking out at the street. And I mean, I don't know what other scene in a movie is like that um, where the music is just operating on this, euphoric level um and which leads me to uh i think a difficulty with blade runner uh, i think as we've discussed many times blade runner 2049 is a miracle of a movie the score is a miracle the score warmed up we warmed up to it i know patrick kind of famously initially you're like oh i don't really know and then after a while you're like wow this music's amazing um and that's something that shouldn't have happened quite honestly I don't know how it happened. I don't know how they came up with music for a sequel to Blade Runner and have it work and express the inner life of Kay 
so beautifully the way Vangelis would do it, but in a different way, which brings me to, again, the the power of this man and his talent. Uh, and I don't, I'm not bringing this up to dog on it, but I, I think it's important to talk about Blade Runner Black Lotus. I know we've all had many issues with that show, but a lot of the issue comes down to the absence of Vangelis's music to, to create the, life, the inner life. All of the inner life was absent in that show and it came out in exposition because there was no music there to give us an idea of the inner life. So what do we do? What do lesser writers do? What do lesser filmmakers do in situations like that? It's just exposition and manipulation. Exposition and manipulation. And I'm not trying to insult the very talented people who worked on that show, but clearly there was a deficiency. And I want to pivot back to Vangelis and talk about why he is so integral to the voice of Blade Runner. And I don't know what they're going to do for the series. I have no idea. I mean, maybe it could be another miracle. It's possible. But if they don't get, if they don't have a composer who understands that expressing the inner life with music is a part of the storytelling of Blade Runner, it's not going to succeed. Um, and it did succeed with Blade Runner 2049. And that's why we're. I was talking to someone about... Vangelis was passing a few days ago and how I'm like, and I was like, yeah, he'll never score another Blade Runner film. He'll never. And they were like, well, he probably wasn't going to do it anyways. I don't know if he had any much interest. I said, maybe, but the possibility is gone. The possibility that he could have, he could be scoring Blade Runner 2099, the series it's gone. So, and I said this, I think to all three of us or to all, to both of you, <laughs> um, that I feel like a piece of Blade Runner died with him. A fundamental piece of Blade Runner died with him. The ability to have characters express their character through music and have a movie host a score that is a character in itself as a vehicle to express the inner life of other characters, that's gone. He's gone. And I don't know how they're going to do it again because they need to do it again. And I think... as I, you know, as I approach, I mean, I don't think about Black Lotus again, and I'm not trying to bring this up to like dog on Black Lotus, but I'm trying to bring it up or I'm attempting to, to express what, what I almost said Giger, what Vangelis's absence does, what it is when this music is absent from Blade Runner, you can feel it. You can feel that there's something missing. You can feel that there's a character missing. You can feel that other things are making up for this big, huge piece of Blade Runner that should be there and present, and it's not there. And I want to, and that is a testament to who he is. And it, in semi-defense of Black Lotus, I think it's worth remembering that it's it's like twelve, it's like eight times longer than Blade Runner is from a running time perspective. So it's it's you know the level of detail. That Vangelis put into the score for Blade Runner was never going to happen, especially with like, you know, it's one small budget streaming content thing. You know, it's just it's just not it's not Ridley Scott directing you know a masterpiece coming off of Alien, right? Um, so it, you can't really expect that. That being said, I mean, we we could expect more. I mean, I, I think a reason why the score for twenty four for for one thing, I do want to be clear: the score for twenty forty nine is not as good as the score for 2019, in my opinion, as much as I love portions of it, 
There are, I agree. I, mean, I, agree. I, I, I can't even listen to the full soundtrack because there's, I, I mean, I, I've told this to you before. We've listened to it in the car together. And I, I'm like, do you listen to this part? You're like, nah, I kind of. Like, well, there's, I listen there's, to there's all whole, of it. But there's, I, it's I listen just, to it's, my version of it, the Orion edition. The Orion has, edition, yeah. Which has the, the talking in it, which makes Yeah, that probably more, helps. Yeah. Yeah. But to me, when I put on the score, like there's vast stretches of it that are, it's just boring because it's just like, oh, I'm going to sit here and hold the corn for a long mm-hmm. time. Ooh, scary noise, scary noise, scary noise. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, and then it's punctuated by moments of absolute brilliance, like mm-hmm. Sepulveda wall and these amazing, the seawall and these amazing things that, you know, stick out. But, um, but Vangelis, there's no, there's not even a second. There's no of his score for yeah. Blade Runner that is anything yeah. but magnificent. That doesn't mean that it's always grabbing you by the throat. You know, it, it just means that even in those quiet moments of reverie, like the two we were just talking about a, a little while ago, like those are quiet moments that are so full of spirit and character and thought. And even in their in their quietness, there's just a lot going on. You know, there's there's a lot there's a lot of layering to it. And part of I think why Vangelis was so beautifully positioned for Blade Runner is because of that aesthetic maximalism that he brought to the score that Scott and company brought to the visual look of the film. You know, I mean, when you look at Blade Runner, like often when I put something on our social media pages, you know, I'll I'll comment on how much is going on detail wise. Like if you look in the corner of the frame, because it's like crazy, like any, any still from Blade Runner is full of like 3000 pieces of visual data for you to look at. Right. That's part of why it's held up so well over the years is because as you know, a lot of movies from its era that were originally kind of hard to watch, you know, outside of a movie theater, because you had to watch it on a VHS transfer or something, you know, they kind of looked, they kind of got away with not looking great. Like a lot of schlocky eighties movies look pretty good on tape. And then as we got laser discs and DVDs of them, we're like, Oh man, that doesn't look very good. Blade Runner looks better every time it gets a higher definition release, you know? Um, Similarly, Vangelis' music, every time it gets reissued or remastered or put out in some different version, like it always just sounds even better than it already did because the same amount of attention to detail and craftsmanship went into the score as did the film. Uh, you know, and you, I mean, you, you, nobody could do that for uh, how many episodes? Was it 13 episodes, Black Lotus? For a 13 episodes, so like that's just never going to happen, let alone the fact that you know, whoever was writing the music for it wasn't getting paid anywhere near what Vangelis was getting paid. You know, it's just, you, you can't put that much time into it. Uh, so that's not necessarily, I'm not trying to be an apologist for Black Lotus, but I do think it's, it's, it's almost impossible to really compare them. No, I agree. I think what I'm trying to say though, is that the original film Blade Runner was built with music. It is a film constructed with music where music was an integral part of the editing process. Everything um, it 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 is it is locked into it like it's D- Blade Runner's DNA is its music in some ways and a huge way whereas and it's important that it is we remember it because of the music in, in large part and I think if you're going to approach a Blade Runner uh, project again you have to and I'm sure the music isn't going to be there's never going to be another Vangelis. Whoever, certainly for a show, they're not going to be paid as much. It's going to be way more work. So they have to kind of work briskly, put stuff together briskly. But at the same time, by doing that, it hurts it because the music is the building block. The What Vangelis did set up the world of Blade Runner. And without it, it's not the same. That's what I'm trying to say. Yeah, and I think that gets into a moral conversation about whether it's okay to even do this in the first place. Because, like, 
I mean, Black Lotus, I think we, we, we all on the show can agree, really fell short of what we had, even though we had, I think, pretty realistic expectations of it, you know, like that, that density of visual information wasn't there, that careful attention to character storytelling didn't feel like it was there in the music and the sound design, they felt just very anemic. And we're at a place now where we're coming up on this streaming. I mean, we haven't heard anything more about 2099 since it was announced, but like presumably it's still happening and it's going to be a long form live action series. And if it's anything like Jamie and I have different feelings on this, the, in my opinion, fucking terrible halo series on Paramount plus, like if, if it comes out like that, oh, you I'll think be it's so terrible? Hard. Oh, it's fucking awesome. It feels well, like I, a bunch of high schoolers. Oh, and I, I just think it's fun. That's all. I, I think it's just a great yeah. adventure. I don't think it's as deep anything. It's just fun. I, I, I want to, but I can't, I cannot get past like three episodes. That, that That's neither here nor there. And I, I, I say that also as somebody who's probably played too much Halo and is too close to it mm-hmm. to get past my own hangups about it. But still, even for me, like it feels kind of cheap and it feels a little bit mm. TV showy. Mm. Um, and, you know, if, if we end up getting that, I mean, can you think of any memorable moment? I think the theme from the the Halo series is good. But other than that, I I can't even picture any musical cues from it whatsoever. Yeah, well, I mean, they are, you can't be more different than Halo and Blade Runner. I mean, one Halo is sci-fi, you know? Yeah, but one is cerebral, um, intellectual, highbrow sci-fi. The other is gutter sci-fi. Just action pieces. Oh, we got to get to this new planet. We end this spaceship. Oh, we got to get this object. Like, they're just, they're, they're so different. You can't even, they're in different stratospheres. Yeah. But, the, but they're both, you know, presumably high budget, major platform sci-fi long form releases. Right. Mm-hmm. And I, I can think of plenty of action movies that have incredible scores to them. You know, I think, I think True. True. we talk, we've talked about many on sublime noise, for example. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm just saying that, like, I hope that I, I, I don't know. I worry sometimes, you know, I, I know there's I'm some too. sacred cows. Out Absolutely. There and, and I feel like, Blade Runner, they've done such a beautiful job with the comic books to me that like that is enough. Like I, I have just treasured those comics and I look forward every single month to getting the next. Oh, issue. absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and, and like that to me, that's how you keep it going without it. Infer- because if the second you put moving images together, you, you're going to have to look at it vis-a-vis 2019 and 2049. And the second you do that, unless you have some like astonishing, astonishing creative talent, it's going to look like shit. And um, I don't know. I'm just blabbing about it. But I, to, to pull this back to Vangelis, I think what we're really all saying here is how important his attention to detail, uh, the, the tapestry of his music, how each sound, each symbol, each uh, piano movement was layered and thought about and crafted for hours and hours and hours. And loved. And you know, loved and loved. Yeah. He, he really, he, he had a <laughs> pushed into the world. <laughs> he loved. He had a, a real relationship with the sounds that he used. He like did. he treated them like they were living parts of his music. And that's, I think again, uh, the, the, the crater that he lay, he leaves in this earth. Um, that's the crater he leaves now that he's gone. Um, and as we approach a new Blade Runner project, the biggest project since I wouldn't call Black Lotus, but the big, the biggest project since 2049, you need someone who understands that the tapestry of this IP was built with Vangelis. He built it. Him and Ridley Scott built 
what Blade Runner is. And in order to, you'll never fill his shoes and you can't go in there you can't go into a project thinking, well, it has to be as good as Vangelis. No, you have to do the best thing that you can, but also understanding how music works, understanding how Blade Runner music works within that context, that it's just not music that's thrown there to manipulate us. It's music that's a character, and you have to fully understand that and engage that. And I'm not a musician, and I, but I mean, I'm a huge music fan. I feel like I can understand music in some fundamental ways, and I think you know this, Patrick. Um, I don't speak the language specifically, but I speak its heart language, and it speaks to me. And I know, and I think all, all three of us here understand why Vangelis is so important to Blade Runner, and that without him, there is no Blade Runner, period. And um, going forward in a world without him, in a Blade Runner project without him, and of course, again, we struck gold with Wallfish, even though his score isn't like as amazing as Vangelis, it's pretty profound, um, and it's it's something that was crafted in a way where they understood what they were doing. And if they're going to go forward with a 10-hour show, uh, a 10-episode show, they have to put in the time. They have to put in the time or it's not going to succeed the way that they want it to succeed. And I think that's my obituary for Vangelis is knowing um, the trail he's left behind him like a comet as he's went to another atmosphere and uh, I miss him. Yeah. I, I think my final thoughts um, and they're not going to be as poetic or, you know, heartfelt as, as some of the, maybe this things we've all said on this episode or even some of my prior thoughts. But for me, one of the most important things that he did is he allowed me to listen to a soundtrack with us with a saxophone on it. And I, 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 I'm sorry, listeners, if any of you are saxophone lovers, players, it's it's an instrument from hell. It's one of the worst <laughs> noises um, that any instrument can make, any wind instrument. And again, this is because I played wind instruments and had the feel of the reed in your mouth at some point um, as, as a child, and I haven't gotten over it. But it's one of the rare times I can listen to a saxophone and not immediately either turn the station or turn off the music immediately. So um, aside from the muscular saxophone player from the Lost Boys, um, he is uh, will go down in history for me for the one person that I can listen to a saxophone from. So that, that's what I'd like my final words to be on, on him. Peter, you're, bring, you're, you're triggering me a little bit here because I not only played first chair alto saxophone for all of high school, but I played soprano saxophone as well. And uh, I, yeah, it's pretty insufferable. And, and it's, it's a, and I'm, I'm not in disagreement with you about that. Um, but very human, you know, and, and as far as an instrument goes, it sounds a lot like a human voice and that's both to its benefit and its detriment. You know, for me, in my my little parting epitaph here for for Vangelis, I want to thank him because I felt like I had a guide through unplumbed musical regions of my heart in Vangelis. I feel like he was there with me at times in my life where I really needed him. I feel like his music spoke to me a lot of times where I really needed to be spoken to and spoken with and listened to. Uh, some of my favorite memories of Van Gelsen's music are in high school, you know, uh, when I would have a bad experience or something, I would put on my, you know, CD player that had a tape deck adapter 
and I would throw on Blade Runner and I would just drive around late at night along the shore listening to Blade Runner blues and just blissing out and feeling like I was in another world or in another time. And, you know, even to this day, that, that is my go-to music for when I'm alone in the car late at night. I just go back to Blade Runner over and over again. And other things Vangelis did, but it, it always comes back to Blade Runner for me because I have such a deep attachment to it. And, you know, when I got my new car um, last year, uh, like to, I have this very distinct memory because it was the first time I ever had a convertible. I could take the roof off of it. And I went for a ride at like 11 o'clock at night. I took the roof off and I just listened all the way through the entire uh, Esper edition of the soundtrack and just drove until it was done and um, got back at like one in the morning, freezing cold. And I had again, one of those moments. And I just, at one point I, I pulled up along a lake that I've been going to since I was a kid for fishing and, and swimming and things. And I drove all the way to this lake and then I got out of the car under the stars and I just sat there with the music playing and looked up through the open roof because there was no roof on it, you know, and I looked up at the stars and I, I really felt like I was communing with something sacred, you know? And his music has always done that for me. It feels like a communion with the ineffable reality that there's more to life than us and there's more to us than we see. And in parting, you know, Vangelis was a really firm believer that music was a functioning as more than just music. That the reason why we all understand things about it in very deep ways is because to Vangelis, it's the language of mystery of, of what is beyond us, whether that's God or the afterlife or the cosmos speaking to us and vibrations or whatever. To him, like the metaphysical and the physical were one and the same and music was the key to understanding that. And and I, I have always felt the same way, you know? Like when I was a kid and I kind of, and I stopped feeling uh, drawn to organize, I had kind of a falling out with organized religion for a number of reasons. And since then, like to this day, I always say my religion is music because it, it to me like that, that's like the most spiritual thing we have is music and love. And, and I, I find no difference between those two things. Like music is love and love is music. They're both invisible languages that allow us to communicate with each other in incredibly subtle ways that words can never do. So that's why going back to the very beginning of this episode, you know, when I was saying what we say tonight will never do one one thousandth of what listening to his music can do, that my, my epitaph for Vangelis is to listen to his music, which is what I'm going to do tonight as I lie in bed because it is what I've done many times in my life when I've been lying in bed and searching for words that weren't there. And he's been there right by my side. So thank you to Vangelis. That wraps our show. Thank you everyone for listening. Again, uh, it is passing of this man in the 40th year of Blade Runner's release is a very profound thing and he will be missed. But we are so grateful for you guys for listening and we will be back. Um, we are planning some 40-year anniversary celebrations. We might have a t-shirt we might be releasing. We're working on that um, and some other content. Um, so stay tuned. And just before we go, a special shout out to Mr. Nick DeBoer or Nick Nick De, Nick DeBoer. Eschewed, eschewed, I don't know. Uh, but, but let me know if I'm pronouncing your name wrong. You are our newest patron and we are really grateful for you, Nick. So thank you for helping us. If you want to join Nick, you can head over to Shoulder of Orion sorry to blade runner podcast.com slash support you can search us up on uh, patreon and for just a few dollars a month for four dollars a month you get access to tons and tons of shows including plenty if you like this music conversation tonight there's let me tell you a whole bunch of content waiting for you where we dive just as deeply into other music that means 
maybe not quite as much, but sometimes almost as much to us as Vangelis' score for Blade Runner does. So if you want access to the entire library of literally hundreds of hours of recordings at this point of sublime noise, frame rate, shit show, other things, um, you can just go to our Patreon page and sign up and we will give you a shout out and welcome you with open arms. Thank you. If you would like to find out more about Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast, please go to www.bladerunnerpodcast.com. If you would like to support the show via Patreon, please go to www.bladerunnerpodcast.com forward slash support. Thank you.